As a divisive election drags on, what are the prospects for confronting climate disruption? Climate One conversations feature all dimensions of the climate emergency, the personal and the systemic, the exciting and the scary. I'm Greg Dalton. Later in the show, we'll hear from psychologist Renee Lertzman about self-reflection and empathy in the wake of high-stakes election. We also will hear from Eric Utney, founder of the Utney Reader, about his surprising approach to hope. First, a quick take on the election. The path for climate action is narrower now in the United States than it seemed a few weeks ago amid talk of a potential blue wave opening up new possibilities for moving to cleaner energy. Some of the biggest advances for Republicans came in areas experiencing climate impacts, according to reports from Climate Wire and The New York Times. In Miami, voters ousted two Democratic House members. Donald Trump improved his vote in that Democratic stronghold that is experiencing sunny-day flooding related to rising seas that are caused by burning fossil fuels. Charleston, South Carolina is being hit by rising tides, and voters there ousted Democrat Joe Cunningham in favor of Republican Nancy Mace, who says that climate science is unsettled. In Texas, Democrat Krista Castaneda received $2.5 million from Michael Bloomberg as part of his climate campaign. But Castaneda appears to have lost her bid to serve on the Texas Railroad Commission, the state's powerful oil and gas regulator. Democrats also lost House seats in Oklahoma and New Mexico in districts dependent on fossil fuels. There were a few slivers of light for people concerned about climate. Representatives Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Elon Omar, Rashida Tlaib, and Ayanna Presley, all strong supporters of the Green New Deal, won decisively. Denver increased the local sales tax to raise money for efforts to reduce the city's greenhouse gas emissions. In Nevada, voters affirmed a state initiative requiring half of their electricity come from renewable sources by 2030. Add it all up, and the election didn't accelerate a transition to cleaner energy, although markets, technologies, and companies are all reducing carbon pollution. To make sense of it all, I turned to David Roberts, who covers energy and climate for Vox. We spoke as he was still processing the election results like everyone else. He wondered what it would take for Americans to fully realize the magnitude of a disrupted climate. The climate community doesn't necessarily like hearing this, but I just don't think climate was a particularly salient factor in in the elections this year. There's too much else going on. There's mm-hmm. too much chaos. Mm-hmm. And I think, uh, you know, I think what we learned is what we just what we keep learning over and over and over again, what I personally keep learning over and over again. Every time I think I've learned it, I learn that I have not learned it hard enough, <laughs> which is just that polarization is the strongest force in US public life now. Nothing, <laughs> nothing is stronger than it. And 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 we have sort of like a this almost sort of like ludicrous <laughs> case study, like what if a president came in and allowed a quarter million people to to die. Like, what if there was the greatest mass casualty event in U.S. history on a visibly, in, you know, sort of incompetent president's watch? It didn't move the poll numbers at all. Like, the Biden-Trump poll numbers were not dented at all by these catastrophic historical events. And I think that's just what you see up and down the ticket is just that – with just sort of very, very, very tiny moves along some margins, basically the sides are set and it appears that literally nothing can break through that. And you've written about this, how people 
sort of process information and make decisions, whether it's election or what information to accept based on tribal motivations, cues from social elites. So doesn't that just make sense that, yeah, a quarter million people died, but my family, my tribe, my people have this narrative about that, that it's not his fault, that it uh, came from China. And that just, you know, we were not rational beings. We're tribal animals. <laughs> I, I just think that something like, especially people of the liberal temperament, let's say it is sort of your standard, highly educated, uh, highly verbal, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, liberal arts trained, <laughs> liberal wants to believe even though I think liberals have come to acknowledge this sort of basic irrationality and this basic sort of like, you know, sort of social determinism in the U.S., I think they still want to believe on some level that it has limits, that there's some that there's some edge, some limit to it, something that could happen that could break through it. People really want to believe. And, it, and, I, and I feel like now, like, if a pandemic that kills a quarter million people and is very clearly one party's responsibility. If that can't do it, then I think we have to acknowledge that literally nothing can. There's nothing, nothing climate could do could break through that. I mean, these people, I mean, they are also the ones dying. Their communities are dying. This, this, the out, it's worse in rural areas right now, the virus, than it was you know, a, a few months before the election and it just didn't change anything. It's just hard to imagine what could change anything. So, you know, I think that the conclusion for, for the left has to be you're at least for the time being, you're not gonna, you know, like there's, there's stuff you can do to change numbers along the margins, but the big problem is just the structural features of U S government exaggerate the, the power and the voice of of Republican constituencies. And so even though they have a minority, even though there are more Democrats, you know, like everyone knows Joe Biden's going to win the popular vote by a, by a pretty big margin. It's just common knowledge now. There are more Democrats. It's just the system is set up so that they so that the the minority of, of Republican constituents have a lock on the structures of U.S. government. And that as long as that's in place, I think we're just in for spinning our wheels like this for forever. During the election, there was some discussion of energy. There was the talk about Joe Biden's comment during one of the debates about transitioning away from from uh, fossil fuels. That created quite a stir, even though polls show that uh, Americans support that. Americans support uh, moving towards clean energy, et cetera, until you put a price tag on it or there's a personal impact. So tell Tell us your thoughts on that, on how there are the debate around climate change, energy in the election and how that played out. Yeah, I think being honest, I think most of that was a bored national media wanting for there to be something to say or write about because i mean one of these things about partisanship being so frozen and in the the respective candidates numbers being so steady and frozen no matter what happens is it gets very boring as a political journalist there's a i mean the, the question is like will this gaffe or this incident or this little thing affect the race the answer is just always no it won't i mean i don't think i honestly don't think 
energy played that huge of a role in the election or in or in the election results. I don't think any substantive policy related discussion did. We're we're at a level way deeper than that now. We're at like identity, gut identity level, basic values level. Like policy is just sort of the least of everybody's worries at this point. So, uh, you know, on the larger point uh, of like how the public thinks about energy, it's just, I tried to get at this in a post the other day, is just the general public by and large, and this is something political scientists know, but like can't seem to persuade everybody else to take seriously, is that the general public doesn't know anything. They don't, they have lives, jobs, worries, like sports and TV shows to watch. Like they just don't have time to keep up with politics. And so they just don't have substantive views on issues as such. Their, their, their views on issues are very shallow and often self-contradictory and often just pulled together of scraps of information that have managed to make it to them. And so they're very malleable. So you can push them either easily, either one way or the other. So if you talk about energy in terms of cleanness and lack of pollution and like the future and innovation, they'll, they'll give you positive poll responses. And if you, and if you emphasize, oh, a cost, a penalty, a, 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 some sort of restraint on your life or lifestyle, you'll get a negative poll result. But there's no deep conclusion to draw from either of those. In this program, we're exploring election and climate anxiety, grief, and hope. Some experts, including psychologist Renee Lertzman in our next segment, say that after divisive elections, people on both sides should look inward and summon compassion for voters who see things differently rather than ridiculing them to listen and seek to understand. Your Twitter feed is full of strong statements about people who don't see climate the way you do. You know, do you how often do you reflect on your own tone and seek to understand people who are not as concerned about climate as you are? You know, maybe it's just the mood I'm in today, which, uh, as you can probably tell, is not a good one. But to me, it is there's something so characteristically left about losing and then spending the period after losing, telling one another that losing isn't really so bad after all, and let's be nice and 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 let's and let's feel compassion for the people who just destroyed us and want to destroy everything we care about and want to roll the country back centuries and want to do nothing about climate change and want to put refugee kids in cages and want to you know bring in federal troops and beat protesters and yeah let's just if we compassioned them a little harder you know you know what that would do it would make us feel good and it would make us look good to one another but the alleged targets of the compassion don't give a damn they just want us dead and and they've never pretended otherwise several years ago trump announced his intention to withdraw the united states from the paris climate accord and the day after the election that officially happened us had already stopped pursuing paris pledges and today the country's roughly halfway to the obama era reductions in carbon pollution Europe has stepped up with more ambitious goals, but how big a deal is this that the U.S. is now out of Paris? The U.S. will get back in Paris if Biden wins, as it as it sort of mostly looks like he's going to. That's the one. I mean, there's the one clear, I think, good outcome of this that people can hang their hat on is the president has a lot of power and and latitude 
in foreign policy, more so than on domestic policy. So there's a lot Joe Biden can do on foreign policy to, you know, get get us back in Paris. He can start, you know, drawing together small groups of nations that are willing to move faster. He can pressure Brazil to stop burning its rainforests, things like that. So on foreign policy, there's, you know, it's good, but but ultimately the U.S. can't lead on this if the U.S. isn't acting on this, right? I mean, there's only so much you can do with words. And plus now all our international partners are like, well, whatever you say, Biden, for all we know in 2024, you're going to flail back the other direction and, and the next president will undo all this. You're just the, – the international community can trust U.S. intentions and steadiness less and less and less, which is just bad, I think, unequivocally bad for the global climate effort. I mean, as much as people criticize the U.S. and U.S. foreign policy, the U.S. is about as good as it gets in terms of who can play a leadership role in this international effort, who has sort of the power and the money and the influence, the soft the, the soft influence and the hard influence to to lead these things in the right direction. I don't think the EU is going to be able to do it. And I don't think we're going to much like the way it looks when China is leading uh, the effort. But at least on foreign policy, there's a chance now to sort of send a different message to the international community. But ultimately, like... The, things are moving in the right direction too slowly. This is the big story of climate change, right? I mean, everything's moving in the right direction. Clean energy is mm-hmm. rising. Public opinion is changing very slowly. Policy is changing across the world. It's changing in cities. Companies are coming around, big companies. Like things are moving in the right direction, just much, much too slowly. And what this election was, was a chance to speed them up substantially. And now I think that 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 chance is lost. And and as you know, slow, slow action leads to three to four degrees of warming, which is extremely not good. You're listening to a Climate One conversation about the 2020 election. We've been talking with David Roberts, energy and climate change writer for Vox. Coming up, when it comes to dealing with difficult emotions surrounding the election, climate psychologist Renee Lertzman recommends practicing self-awareness and self-care. So knowing when it's time to sort of disengage and to take care of ourselves, to do what we need to do to restore our sense of being grounded, of being connected, of being in balance. So it's definitely a balancing act. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton, and we're talking about election anxiety, hope, and grief. My next guest, Renee Lurchman, is a psychologist who works with the messy emotions of climate change. When we talked a few days ago, campaign season was reaching fever pitch, with most polls showing Joe Biden in the lead. I asked Dr. Lurchman how she responded to Donald Trump's surprise victory in 2016. Well, at the time, I thought, okay, now we will finally get it that there's a profound and deep sense of uh, pain and people feeling aggrieved, people feeling left out to the point where we would see what happened with the election, which is, you know, a behavior that just seems really counterintuitive, but people coming from a place of fear. I thought now we will get it. 
and we will start to change and we will engage in a deep reflection as a community, as a climate community, as a climate sector, as a progressive community. And looking back, I think that I underestimated the profundity and the real dedication that it would take for us as humans, and particularly those of us who were caught off guard and shocked, to do the hard work, the, the, the inner work, quite frankly, of really looking at ourselves and looking at how am I showing up and how am I uh, pushing myself out of my comfort zone so that I'm willing to truly listen, to engage, to, to be curious about the experiences of my fellow Americans and my fellow humans. I, I think I just, I just didn't really take that quite, you know, on board enough. And in looking back, I wish that I had kept the, the attention on that more consistently. The election of Donald Trump, I'm hearing you say, presented an opportunity to kind of lean in, to talk to people, to understand what fear or anger motivated their vote. So what are you thinking about as we head into, you know, as uh, this election is being counted and, and decided, have we learned our lesson? What are you thinking about now in terms of the opportunity after this election to do what we didn't do last time? Well, what I'm thinking about is how when the stakes are so high and we care so deeply about the outcomes is precisely the hardest time it is to show up in the ways that we're needing to. So it's sort of the ultimate human paradox that the more heightened, the more fear, the more anxiety, those are the conditions that actively make it hard for us to move into what I think we kind of know we need to be doing, which is what we sort of give lip service to, which is more listening, more empathy, more uh, relationship building, you know, healing across the divide, all of that. That's what I'm really aware of. And the way that I frame this is really as a truly human developmental opportunity that we have this opportunity now to unfortunately through pain, you know, which is usually the the impetus for for change is discomfort and pain, that we have the opportunity to allow that to really change us and to move into ways of being um, and relating that are that are different, that actually require us to listen, to to pause, to be curious. But, but the other really important aspect of this when we're talking about anxiety and high stakes is that we need each other right now more than ever to, to help us kind of stay in that um, place of being um, what neuroscientists would call regulated, like when we actually are able to self-regulate and stay grounded, to stay balanced, to stay responsive versus reactive, that we need each other to be doing that. And uh, in my experience, you know, really the only way we can do that with each other is by being able to name and acknowledge what's actually going on, you know, to be able to, to speak about and normalize 
the experiences that we're having, you know, whether it's anxiety, fear, overwhelm, um, sadness, you know, and, you know, inspiration and motivation, all those other things too. But how do we know that getting together might just fuel that anxiety? Sometimes I get together with certain people and they and they gripe and and I'm feeling like, oh, this is making me more anxious. <laughs> this is not maybe I'm getting together with the wrong people, but it's making me more anxious when people who all agree kind of kvetch and they, you know, they they talk about one candidate or another and it just seems like, whoa, this is not soothing. <laughs> Good point. Um, I think that's the dark side of <laughs> when we get together and we talk about our feelings. But I I think there there's more of um a phobia about oh if we if we start talking about our feelings we're just going to sort of get mired there what what often can happen is the opposite is that when i share this is what's up for me i'm feeling anxious and overwhelmed what often does happen is that we tend to move into a different mode of okay now what do we want to do how do we want to proceed you know we we tend to kind of move through it more often than not I think that it's also very important for us each to know what our own thresholds are. So knowing when it's time to sort of disengage and to, you know, take care of ourselves, to do what we need to do um, to restore, our, you know, a sense of being grounded, of being connected, of being um, in balance. So it's definitely a, it's a, it's a balancing act. Joe Biden said during the uh, one of the debates that uh, we need to transition away from fossil fuels, something that is actually supported by polls that show that 80 percent of Americans support getting 100 percent of clean energy uh, in this country. So it's a popular statement, yet so many people still there's fear when that that so much of this climate conversation is driven by fear of us losing something, our hamburgers, our airplane flights, our comfortable cars, whatever it is. Is that contrived fear or is that real fear underneath? Well, I think it's incredibly important to situate any kind of change, you know, any kind of transition. Um, it's going to evoke anxieties and fears with people. Like that's just a given. I think that for those working within the climate sectors and movement, um, it's easy to overlook and to forget that what we're really talking about when we talk about fossil fuel transition is is incredibly profound and that it really touches virtually every aspect of who we are, our identities, our attachments, um, basically how we live in the world and all those ways of being in the world that that kind of make us who we are and feel how we are, that when we talk about fossil fuel and energy and climate change and, and food and all of those various practices, we're basically going right into uh, real existential territory. So I think what I observe is that for those working to push for and advance a uh, accelerated transition away from fossil fuels, which we need to do we can overlook that or we can almost get impatient or frustrated with, you know, come on, we let's get on with it. We, we not only do we need to do this, everything that you care about is at stake here. And if we do this, we will have an even, you know, more positive and beneficial future and way of life for, for all of us. So there's that difficulty to, you know, when we see that as possible, 
to actually slow down and pause and, and really kind of attune to what might this bring up for people, whether or not it's rational, whether or not it's even reality-based, how do we really pay attention to those fears and anxieties? Because when we don't, that's exactly what leads to inaction, to resistance, to all those things that we're actively working against when we don't actually acknowledge and, and address those, those anxieties and those fears. When we're talking with other people about difficult issues, whether it's climate change or could be abortion, other things, you talk about four roles, educators, cheerleaders, writers, and guiding, writers with R-I-G-H-T-E-R-S. So tell us about those roles and how they frame the way people talk to each other about difficult issues. So when we care very deeply about issues and we're actually trying to help and be helpful on behalf of the planet and humans, we tend to fall into these modes of being that are very common. And uh, what I've observed over working with organizations for many years now are these very kind of um, predictable modes, very understandable modes. It might look like being an educator where we really focus on educating and we really believe deep down in our heart of hearts that if people really understand the issues that, you know, really get it, that they can't help but want to do something to change the situation. So that's if you if if you knew as much as I do about this, then you'd think my way. Yes, because that's often what our own story was, right? That we had a wake up moment. We had the light went off. And so we want to therefore have others to have that same kind of experience. And so we lean into being an educator. The the other mode that's very common is a cheerleader. A cheerleader is, you know, feeling like we have to keep things really positive, really upbeat, uh, very solutions focused and and sexy and all of that, which is sort of like the the other end of the spectrum, which is we don't want to we don't want people to feel overwhelmed or bummed out, you know, the whole doom and gloom thing. So we're going to keep things really upbeat. So that's a cheerleader mode, which is uh can be pretty exhausting for a lot of us. Um, the writer mode, R-I-G-H-T, that language comes out of motivational interviewing and that refers to writing. So that's the righteous, the, the moralizing, the ethical, like, you know, the finger pointing where this is the right thing to do. And if we don't do this now, we're all going to, you know, be in really big trouble. And, and that's a very strong stance that makes a lot of sense as well. So all of those modes, you know, the educating, the cheerleading, and the writing, they all make complete sense, but they're not actually very effective on their own at truly engaging people, especially people who are not already dialed in, which let's face it, right now at this moment in time, we have got to level it up. We've got to be able to develop more uh sophistication and more skill at engaging with much, much broader groups and communities than we have been, right? So so it's on all of us to do that. And the, the paradox is that educating, writing, and cheerleading don't really get us there. But what what I found does get us there is when we bring those together in a new way and we actually show up as guides, a good guide actually knows a lot. You don't want a guide that doesn't know a lot about where you're going and what you're doing. A guide has a very deep expertise 
and a guide knows what, you know, what to do and not to do. Don't go off that trail. You're going to, you know, fall off the cliff. So a guide can be very directive. But at the same time, if you think about the experience of, of, you know, being with a guide, guides listen and they work with you and they partner with you and they, they're, they give you the sense that we're in this together and let's go, you know, let's, let's do this. And it's a, it's a nuance, but it's a very powerful, very effective shift that I see our community starting to evolve more into and I think needs to be growing into right now, right at this moment more than ever. What do people who care about climate need to do? Uh, there's some hope for bipartisan you know, climate progress, but a lot of people uh, on the left are upset about, at the Republican Party for blocking climate progress and you know, shaming on people for, for supporting Donald Trump. If people who care about climate want to come together and have something bipartisan, meaningful in 2021, what should they do? How should they approach that? Well, I think it's essential that we begin or continue the work of true conversation. And, you know, we talk a lot about climate conversations. Um, We've been talking about it for years. I don't think we actually really understand what that means. Hmm. And Mm -hmm. what it means is really centering our climate crisis in the context of compassion and recognizing that these are profound and existential issues that are scary and um, overwhelming for a lot of us, and that we need to be having honest and open conversations. You know, what we're needing right now is to lean in to convening and forging new ways of interacting and connecting right now more than ever. It's truly about a moment of of care. It's not, it shouldn't just be a moment, but right now, uh, my hope is that we enter into a true kind of moment where we bring care to every aspect of what we do. And, you know, this relates to the need to push ourselves, to stretch ourselves, to have uncomfortable conversations with people that we are not used to talking to and to, you know, to look at how can we resource ourselves and support ourselves so that we're better able to do that. So, you know, again, the frame is how do I develop myself and how can I help develop and support those around me to grow, you know, and, and to know that um, this is the long haul right? This is really the long haul. I know that we're all exhausted. We are all feeling absolutely maxed out, that many of us are feeling um, stretched in ways we never could have possibly imagined. And we've got, you know, a real cognitive um, load going on where, you know, we're there's so many kind of um, inputs and pressures and stressors and all of that. So that's all a given, right? That, that that's where we are. Um, and I prefer to see this as a gateway. It's a gateway into a deeper, it's a deeper way of doing our climate work and our politics. 
and our educating and our, you know, innovating and all of that, all of those activities that we're needing to do right now, I think that we'll find when we bring humility and we bring kindness and care and compassion into the mix of our work on the front lines of advancing change, keeping the pressure up, keeping it going, um, we're going to find that that we're going to have so much more traction and we're going to be less exhausted. You're listening to a conversation about moving through our feelings as we move past the election. That was Renee Lertzman, climate psychologist and founder of Project Inside Out. Coming up, Utney Reader founder Eric Utney confronts our collective mortality. Life is ephemeral. Change is the constant. And the big change is uh, we may die at any moment. And, uh, you know, I'm especially motivated by the thought that all of us may die. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. We're talking about processing the feelings brought up by the 2020 elections, hope, anxiety, and depending how closely the outcome matches your expectations, even grief. Eric Utney's new memoir is Far Out Man, Tales of Life in the Counterculture. The title is a play on his Norwegian surname, which translates loosely as Far Out. We spoke on the morning after the first Biden-Trump debate. Utney told me that as a self-described magazine junkie, he started the Utney Reader in 1984 in order to shine a light on the best of the alternative press. In the 70s, 80s, and 90s, I was able to track a lot of different kind of ideas and social movements and currents from my perch in Minneapolis, Minnesota by reading magazines and browsing newsstands. And that was the way we sort of surfed the web of ideas at the time. And um, I had a tendency to photocopy and send favorite articles to uh, a few in my family or friends. And I knew damn well they weren't going to read, read them. So I got the idea that I should publish a digest of the best of them uh, and make them pay for it. <laughs> so I put together what I thought was going to be a little newsletter initially a 12-page newsletter. Then it grew in a couple issues to 16 pages. And then I realized uh, that people weren't, I they were taking me up on my free copy offer, but they weren't actually paying for it once they got it. So this was in 1984. So I, I had to suspend publication and retool it. Uh, and I designed a 128-page magazine and sent that to everybody who had taken me up on the free copy offer. And this time people did pay for it. And it just, it grew like Topsy um, to eventually 300,000, which was twice the size of Harper's, uh, three times the size of the nation and the New Republic uh, and the National Review. And it had the most educated readers in uh, after the New York uh, Review of Books more educated than the New Yorker, the Atlantic, and Harper's, but they were 10 years younger, and they were very active. They were truly uh, activists. So my favorite thing at the magazine was to introduce the readers to each other in what we called the neighborhood salon movement. And we set up 500 salons all across North America. There were 17 of them in San Francisco, 40 in um, in the L.A. area, 29 in New York, 
the, the Blue Man Group met in an Adni salon. Marriages, businesses, co-housing projects, schools all got their start in, in these salons. So that was my favorite part of publishing the magazine, was bringing these people together. When you were younger, how important was hope to your personal identity and work? Well, I was a hope junkie, like many baby boomers. I was optimistic and thought that uh, I actually was, uh, I realized listening to Donald Trump and Joe Biden last night that I was probably raised in a Trump-like setting. I thought that I couldn't have anything but hopeful thoughts or I would create, my thoughts would create the reality. And I was afraid to have anything but hopeful and optimistic thoughts. And I realized how that plays out uh, last night in watching the debate. Uh, it doesn't play out very well. So you were hopeful when you were young because you thought you were, that's the way you were supposed to be. Because if you had less than hopeful thoughts that they would somehow manifest themselves. So you like, you, you pushed any, anything else away? Yeah. And I think that's a fairly typical American, uh, certainly baby boomer worldview uh, or, or kind of approach. But um, I kind of, it took me, you know, a lifetime to get over it. And I'm only, I'm, I'm a recovering hope junkie now. And I like to say that I'm not hopeless, I'm hope-free. Ah, and you say you lost hope slowly over time, but there was one moment when it really died for you. Not long after Donald Trump's election, you realized that if Hillary Clinton or even Bernie Sanders had been elected, we'd still be rushing headlong over a cliff. It it was less a moment. I mean, I don't want to, I think, Donald Trump is the symptom rather than the cause, even though I do think he's um, he's the symptom of hope run amok. I mean, his you know he was raised in on Norman Vincent Peale and the power of positive thinking. But it was it's really it was reading uh, Paul Kingsnorth and uh, and the Dark Mountain uh, Journal and the and the Dark Mountain Manifesto a few years before that that kind of opened my eyes. Paul Kingsnorth was a an activist and environmental editor for 20 years uh, in the UK, worked at The Ecologist and, and was very active in environmental protests and other work. And at some point he realized after 50 years of environmental action, of an, of an environmental movement, um, things were going in the wrong direction. And he, his conclusion was, it's not going to turn around. And um, he said a piece in the New York Times in 2014. He said, uh, when people use the word hope with me, I reach for my whiskey bottle. Mm. And that, I I got it. And um, actually ended up going to Ireland to work on my book and uh, and went to meet him and his wife and two kids living in the back of the beyonds and in rural Ireland, and I was struck by how hope-free he was. He was—he wasn't despondent and despairing, except possibly on a a deep existential level, uh, recognizing that you know we're we're all mortal. But um, he was raising his kids and living his life with 
beauty and grace. And it seemed that love was informing his behavior rather than hope. And I think there's, that's a big difference. And so when I think about being hope-free, it's not despondent and despairing. It's realizing that there's another choice. We have a choice moment by moment to be, to do and to act in the world, to be a grandparent to my grandchildren, not out of hope, but out of love. Just shower them with love. And so I'm actually kind of lighter and and freer and more activist uh, than I've than I've ever been. Partly because I've finished eight years of writing this book, and now I'm free of that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's a certain freedom. So it's counterintuitive and perhaps a paradox to say that when you realize, when you, you let go of hope, most people would think that, yeah, leads to despair, depression, like, because so much of the climate conversation, is there hope? Can we turn it around? It's, it's just obsessed. It's appalling. In this future, in this future, what I hear you saying is what a meditative person would say is, we don't know the future. What we have is right now. And it sounds trite and cliche, live in the moment. But it's one thing to say it, another thing to do it. So you're saying that you're liberated, you don't see hope, and it's okay. Yeah, I mean, we're all mortal. We're all going to die sometime. The bigger dilemma is that maybe the the civilization is is mortal. Maybe it has a life cycle and maybe we're winding down. I mean, Margaret Wheatley uh, writes a book called uh, Who Do We Choose to Be? And she looks at the life cycle of 22 civilizations, I think. And we've, we're very much in the, the kind of end times behavior, this polarization, the separation of the haves from the have-nots, the rampant exploitation of natural resources. You know, we're we're exhibiting all those behaviors. And she says that it's at some time in most of those civilizations, a kind of warrior shows up, a spiritual warrior who feels called to preserve those things that are worth preserving in the society and to help protect the people, help them transition and to help people find find the others, find their true community. And that's where I think we are right now is uh, find the others and live a more, well, you know, in this piece, I talked about uh, a kind of hyper-local green new deal right. where we really need to turn our attention while, while being mindful of what's going on on the planet and on the national scale, but where we can really affect change is locally, is uh, family and friends and neighbors. That's where it can happen. And and we're so divorced from from that, so estranged. I tell about meeting Margaret Mead actually a, a few times and interviewing her about tribalism and community. And she said something to me that really struck me. She said, 99.9% .9 of the time that humans have lived on the planet, we've lived in tribes. And, and then she defined that as groups of 12 to 36 people. She said, only during times of war or what we have now in modern urban Western cities does the nuclear family prevail because it's the most mobile unit that can ensure the survival of the species. But she said, for the, for the full flowering of the human spirit, we need tribes, we need groups, we need community. 
and we don't have it. People are desperate to to dive deeper than the uh, either political debate or the the chit chat that happens over the water cooler to something really deep and meaningful. And that's you know that's what your show is trying to do. There's there's not many opportunities for people to really dive deep. And COVID seems to be bearing that as well, the isolation of COVID. In some ways, there's more connection with COVID because we can just click on you and I are talking over the internet now from across the country. So you said a little bit how COVID is a gift. How is COVID a gift? Well, it confronts us with our mortality. And um, that's a good thing. I had a Tibetan friend, Tashi, and um, he was working in the the laundry of the children's hospital, schlepping soiled linens. And then someone realized that this guy is really different. He had a kind of presence that, so they asked him to leave the laundry and to come up into the ward where people were terminal, either because they were at risk of taking their own lives or because they had been declared terminal for the, with cancer, especially. And I said, well, what did you, what did you do with them? And he said, well, I just, sit and talk with them. Um, what do you talk about? Well, that uh, life is very precious. You know? And then I asked him, do you have a spiritual practice? And he said, oh, yeah. He said, I think about death every day. And that really struck me at the time as kind of morbid. But uh, now it's, it's a kind of spiritual practice. And I also, I think COVID, I think the fires, and global climate change and how it shows its face, you know, everywhere we turn and the chaos in the streets and the what's going on with the economy. I mean, there are so many fronts in which change is so huge and extraordinary that we realize that life is ephemeral. Change is the constant and the big change is of we may die at any moment. And, uh, you know, I'm especially motivated by the thought that all of us may die. Uh, at, I mean, climate change is really, it could get much worse very soon. Yeah. So it seems to be hard because so much of it is like, oh, give up. Because there's an alternative, which is, and you talk about how the boomers lost their way. The alternative is just like indulge into immediate gratification. Well, if the world is ending, let's party. Yeah. And then with COVID, that doesn't work so well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but there's another there's another path, and that's Extinction Rebellion. And what they're doing in, in the UK right now, which I think is really exciting. And um, Zadie Smith, I don't know if you saw what she said a few days ago, but she was speaking, there's a a group within Extinction Rebellion called Writers Rebel. And um, it's writers like George uh, Monbiot from uh, The Guardian and um, Margaret Atwood and on and on, and, and Zadie Smith. And Zadie Smith spoke and she said that six years ago, she talked about climate despair and how that was kind of a almost a species shame that humans, it was a natural feeling that people would have because so much of life dies at the expense of our lifestyles and our, and our 
energy consumption and our food choices and the rest of it. She said, but then they were protesting in front of uh, the offices of the Global Warming Policy Foundation, which states on its website, while the foundation is open-minded on the contested science of global warming, it is deeply concerned about the costs and other implications of many of the policies currently being advocated. That's that's from the that foundation. And so Zadie Smith writes, she realized that her previous beliefs that climate change denial was rooted in a genuine fear was naive. Now we know better, she wrote. Now we know the outsized, unruly emotions that surround the scientific fact of climate change. They're fueled by something far more calculated and external than species shame. Basically, it's fueled by think tanks and right-wing lobbyists who are paid for by the financial institutions and the oil companies. And, um, and Mark Rylance and uh, a number of others are really stepping up and saying, you know, this is a concerted effort to make us feel that we just have to change ourselves and things will get, that, that's what it's going to take to survive. We don't need to reach out to each other, as you were talking about in community, but also insist together that our government change its policies uh, to be more, not just environment friendly, but to really make to recognize that this is an existential crisis and we need to face it now. So that's that's the other part of giving up hope is realizing that we still have to act. We have to do whatever we can to make a difference in the, the way that we best know how to use our energy and and talents. You've been listening to a Climate One conversation about what's next for the climate in the wake of the 2020 elections. We just heard from Eric Utney, founder and publisher of the Utney Reader and author of the new memoir, Far Out Man, Tales of Life in the Counterculture. My other guests today were Renee Lertzman, climate psychologist and founder of Project Inside Out, and David Roberts, energy and climate change writer for Vox. To hear more Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Please help us get people talking more about climate by giving us a rating or review. It really does help advance the climate conversation. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. Sarah Catherine Coxon is our strategy and content manager. Steve Fox is director of advancement. Annie Chelsea edited the program. Our audio team is Mark Kirshner, Arnav Gupta, and Andrew Stelzer. Dr. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, the nonprofit and nonpartisan forum where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton. <laughs>